This is it. This is the plague crew. You're looking at it. Oh, okay, this cool. is here we are plague at the end of the earth. Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. The Rosicrucians are one of the most mysterious secret societies in the history of secret societies. Arguably because they were so secret, they didn't even exist. Historically, the Rosicrucians published a series of manifestos, and one of my favorite occult books, an allegory drawing on alchemical symbolism to tell a story about the progress of the soul, The Chemical Wedding. This happened in Germany at the turn of the 16th into the 17th century, not long after Martin Luther dropped Protestantism on a philosophically modernizing Europe. Mythologically, the Rosicrucians are a secret order going all the way back to Amenhotep IV, who initiated the first revealed religion and pulled Egypt abruptly into monotheistic worship in the 15th century before our common era. Also in the mythological realm, they are responsible for carrying forward a millennia-long anarchist black magical plot to undermine the social order. Today, my favorite Renaissance occult movement, the Rosicrucians. Well, there you are. Rosicrucians. That was, that was the most epic intro. Was it I've the heard. most epic? I think so. I mean, you said it was your no. favorite. It is my... Okay, so the, it's and they're my so personal secret, attachment. They might not have even been real. Right, that's that's pretty pretty epic. Like they, they've, they're so secret. They're in history, but they've also eluded history. <laughs> okay. They're in history because they've eluded history. Let me turn you guys up a bit. Uh, which one? I'm are also you? whispering for some reason. I think it's because I don't want to hurt. Don't mumble. Tiny ears. Don't talk about my ears. Sorry, I don't know why I'm giving you so much shit today. <laughs> you are. I was going to give you an apology about Black Clover, but I'm not now. Oh yeah, because James needs an apology. Do you know, James, that we got an email? saying uh <laughs> basically I, I can't remember the name jj i think is the person who emailed us and they said um it seems strange to me uh that you guys are so mean to james and he keeps coming back james <laughs> is mean to me <laughs> i think probably jj was referring to that episode where we kept saying james wet himself oh yeah that was fun <laughs> I feel like James brought that on himself. No, I definitely, though. I definitely leaned into yeah. the uh, me being offended. Bit. Yeah, so JJ, that's that all. Bit, that's all part of the all part of the fun. Don't worry, we love James, um, which is why we're not hugging him these days because you know viruses. Yeah. So uh, let's introduce our crew. Uh, speaking, I of, don't have the virus. No, James doesn't have the virus. <laughs> Just to be clear, <laughs> not that we know of. <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't have wouldn't have been in the same room with him today. Uh, but but uh, we are in in times of plague. Uh, so so we're having a very sort of special situation this this episode. As we get into the introductions here, you'll notice that we are running fairly short. Now this is going to be true for both this episode and the next one. Uh, I'm recording now. Uh, this is the 13th, Friday the 13th of March. You're going to be hearing this in two weeks. Uh, and this is the last day that I can physically be on my college campus at my theater where I do the recording for acoustic reasons um, because the campus is shutting down. Kicking us out. Kicking us well, on out. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to try to get a month's worth of recording in and, and keep our fingers crossed. Um, uh, let, let me introduce the folks and, and then and we'll get a bit more into this this whole business and how we're dealing with it. Uh, we do have James Kaplanji, our captain of the table. Howdy. <laughs> Always You're a delight. captain. Uh, oh, uh, uh, Cap, crunch ties. <laughs> 
I don't know. What did Captain say? I thought you were going to give me like a pirate. We have Olivia Literal, uh, our grandmaster. Hello, everyone. Uh, And uh, I actually want to bring in Dan Rosendale just to uh, say hi, because he's part of this plague crew, and and Dan's doing our voices for this day. Dan, come on, say hi. Hi, Rob. And hello, everyone. Okay, I was about to say say rude. Only hi, Rob. (laughs) Me, my name is Rob C. Thompson. I am the supreme hierophant of our secret order of alchemical actors with a PhD in things occult. That is real. Some people ask if that's real. I do actually have a PhD. It says in in things occult. Right right on there. It says things occult. Yeah, doctor of philosophy. In the quotes and everything. Things occult. We, the members of the The Secret Secret Order Order of Alchemical Alchemical Actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. All right, now uh, let's plug it on in, Olivia. Plug, plug, plug. I'm going to set this aside uh, today. I'm going to put put aside the usual business, um, uh, uh, with one exception. I, I do want to thank our patrons because we're off for a, for a month, and I want to apologize to anyone who joins our patrons over the next month because we cannot Ooh. thank you. Yeah. But David D., also Scott B., and Anders K., have all joined the patron crew, and we are very grateful to have your support. Um, let me talk a little bit about uh, the virus, the, the covid 19? I'm sorry, Rob. Uh, which virus are you talking about? The, the COVID. The Corona oh, COVID. Oh, yeah. Yes. That's the big one. Uh, and w- incidentally, because we love acronyms on this podcast, when you spell COVID, it's a capital C, lowercase o, and then capital V-I-D, because the, the CO stands for Corona, and then it's virus something something. Infectious disease. Cool. Maybe. Let's, maybe, let's say that's probably... that's a, We can make anything up on acronyms because we have an established reputation for not caring. <laughs> uh, but let's get serious for a second here. Uh, it, it's, first of all, let's talk about Patreon. Very grateful for our $5 patrons, uh, for our $10 patrons. We've even got a $15 patron who I will not embarrass. <gasps> Uh, we are very grateful to have your support and that you are giving at this level. I am painfully aware uh, that, first of all, we are in a situation where the economy is crashing all around us and many of our listeners... Okay, let's hope not many. I'm going to pray and Olivia's going to send out her witch vibes that you are not among the people who are affected by this slowdown. But we know folks who are working in tourism and restaurants and retail, all sorts of industries are going to be out of work. Uh, I luckily am going to be able to continue teaching uh, online through through the duration of this. But uh, listeners across the, the globe, we have a lot of European, UK, Canadian, American listeners. Australian. Uh, Aust- yeah, Australia. That's where Tom Hanks got the, the COVID uh, we understand that you guys uh, may be hitting some hardship, uh, and and we want to be sensitive to that. Uh, and and I'm just going to give you sort of a bizarre plug now. For one dollar, you can have all our bonus content. Now, bonus content is a good thing because there's like nine, ten, twelve hours of us, uh, and you might be stuck in your home for the next month. Uh, so it's sort of like not in my best interest to say join at the dollar level. But seriously, like just give us a buck, and you can you can listen to all this stuff. Uh, while you're you possibly stuck indoors, and, and let me then uh, I'm just gonna hmm, I'm gonna give this to Shannon so she can post this up on our social media. Just this clip of, of my discussion here of this issue. It's taking up the whole plugs. We're not gonna plug anything else today. Wash your hands and stay out of crowded places. I mean this. Uh, I'm not joking around here. Uh, a very good friend of mine is a PhD in microbiology. This is serious. Uh, and, and I care about our listeners. I really do. If you're on Instagram and Occult Confessions liked your post, it's probably me. I seriously just go and scroll through 
all the stuff you guys post. I love your art. I, I love the outfits you put together. You're super cool people. We I read every message that you send. I might not be the one responding. That might be Olivia or Shannon. Uh, but I feel connected to all of you and I really would not like to lose any of you if I can manage it and it scares me uh, that this thing is sort of raging around the world in in places where I've suddenly have friends in Sweden and the Netherlands and uh, UK and, and Canada and the US uh, and, and I want you guys to be safe our west coast friends there's a lot of, of COVID on the west coast probably you're going to be okay uh, even if you catch it, uh, but there's a chance that you won't, and and it's possible that uh, you could be in contact with someone who is immune compromised. We have several alchemical actors who have uh, immune compromised situations, uh, which is uh, another good reason why we are operating with a skeleton crew today. So I liked the plague crew better. The pla- oh, sorry, plague crew. Plague crew. Yeah. Skeleton plague crew. Yes. Thank you, James. Uh, so that's it. That's all I have to plug today. Please be safe. Um, please stay indoors. Please enjoy podcasts. Uh, we're going to do some things. Uh, I, I'm off for two weeks. The college is actually closed for two weeks. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, this is sort of unusual, I think, for us. We don't do this. I'm going to hop on our Facebook. I'm going to hop on our Instagram personally. Rob himself, uh, and I'm going to share some podcasts I like. I- I'm going to try my best uh, to get you guys uh, t- <laughs> to stay inside uh, and <laughs> and entertain yourselves uh, in in whatever way possible. Uh, we're going to try to create some extra content on those different outlets, and and yeah, just just give us a buck, show us that you you care and love us, and listen to twelve hours of us screwing around if that's your thing. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know what a buck is, it is a dollar. <laughs> Thank you, James. Thank, Thank you. I think buck is slang. Is that yeah, right? I don't. I don't know what it translates to in the UK. Uh, a pound. Uh, one deer. One deer. One uh, deer skin. What do they have in the euro? A euro in in no no in Sweden. Are you Brexit. Oh no. <laughs> Close up the plugs, Olivia. <laughs> plug plug. And plug. I uh, look forward to those emails about what currency these folks have. Um, okay. <laughs> After we get done saying about all of our European listeners and how much we love them. Yeah, scary over there. Okay. Scary here. It's, it's scary here. It's getting scary here. Take it seriously. Let's get to the research. Let's, let's give you a podcast episode to enjoy and to take your mind off things. The year was 1608. Johann Valentin Andrier, a 22-year-old Protestant theology student, joined with a group This was a group of like-minded people who had gathered in the library of his friend, the Dr. Tobias Hess. Hess, a Paracelsian, was one of the few doctors who could help André with his weak health, having recently cured him of a fever. The two also shared a predilection for radical politics. Hess had been corresponding with Simon Studion, a teacher and occultist whose radical views had caused him to be exiled from the court of Friedrich, Duke of Württemberg. Hess and Studion agreed that the papacy must soon be overthrown for Europe to continue along the path of progress. Protestantism and rationalism were an important contributor to this path toward progress. Society was advancing. Studion's controversial book of prophecy, which was called the Neometria, was never published, but it was circulated in manuscript form around the Tübingen University at the time that André and Hess were there, and very likely influenced their ideas on religion and the nearness of the apocalypse. Uh, apologies to our German listeners. I should have said that earlier. Uh, I'm going to pronounce German things, and I have been doing it. Oh. And it hasn't been going well, I'm sure, for, for you all. That one's hard. Sorry, sorry about that. Tübingen? 
Tuben? No, just German. <laughs> just that one. It's technically it's a hard in the, language. It's in the same family as English, so I feel like really? I have. Yeah, well, I guess it English is, right? Is yeah, I guess language. that makes sense. I have sense. a reasonable shot of being correct as an English speaker, uh, but you know. Well. Yeah, I know. I know. You're good at some, but... Uh... <laughs> As many listeners have pointed out, I'm good at making it seem like I know what oh, I'm yeah, doing yeah, yeah. <laughs> while not at all knowing what I'm doing. Uh, so certain celestial signs, including a recent comet, had led many in Germany to conclude that the end times were upon them. So, But they weren't. Well, no, as it turns out. Uh, right. Okay. <laughs> just, it was Spoilers, James. <laughs> so, so, James, you just wanted to clarify that the, the end times end. has not come and gone in 1608. Right. Right. Good. <laughs> we're still here. Fighting we're still corona. Here. Just, yeah, we're still here. <laughs> we're still fighting the good fight. <laughs> okay. So sitting beside the fire in Hess's library, we're back in Hess's library. Oh, ah. good. Uh, we want to picture this man. He's flanked by his admirers, uh, Tobias Admi and Wilhelm Wentz. These are the two admirers of the Italian friar, Tommaso Campanella. Yup. Uh, that guy. Campanella recently published the utopian City of God, which described a society ruled over by hermetic priests. Also in the room, Rit- seated. Oh, Is uh, that the one written by St. Augustus? City of God? Yeah. Sounds familiar. Uh, yes, I believe St. Augustus had a book by the same name. But it's a different one. St. Augustine. St. Augustine. I'm just going one. along with Augustus. You. Augustine. Yeah. Augustine. Yes. yes. Plato book. had a similar idea. Anyway. Okay. Uh, also in the room, seated under a portrait of Hesse's great-grandfather, with all eyes on him, was Christopher Besold, among the most learned of this very learned group. Besold was giving an impromptu lecture, dropping in words from the nine languages he spoke on the mystical Kabbalah and its relationship to Greek philosophy and Christian teachings. True alchemy, he said, had lost its way. The would-be mystics had become too focused on worldly concerns. Money, fame, longevity. The purification of the soul, the involution and evolution of the spirit. This is the true end of alchemy. Someone from the group, perhaps Andrea himself, suggested that they ought to record these ideas in a way that might draw the public's attention. A manifesto, telling the story of a secret society to captivate the popular imagination. We'll write them under a pseudonym, he probably suggested. A character possessed of great mystical and magical knowledge attained through world travel and study. Didn't you write a story like that? Admi asked Andre. An allegory, Andre replied. But this would be more direct. What was the name of the character? Christian Rosenkreutz, an alchemist who founded a secret order 120 years earlier. What do they mean by more direct instead of an allegory? Does that mean that they're just going to try to pass it off as real? Yes. Oh, so they're saying, oh, but this will be a lie. Be like this, do these things, this is true. Okay. okay. But yes, not true (laughs) in a way. Where did they pull the name from? Like, where did they come up with the name? Christian Rosenkreutz? Yeah. Did it come from... Something? Is uh, it a common, like, last name? It's or? Rosie Cross, basically. Yeah. Oh, okay. If it's you think just... about the word Rosie Cross namified, yeah. it's Christian Rosenkreutz. Oh, okay. Yeah. Christian of the Rosie Cross. I gotcha. Yeah. That's not very... Well, I guess it is kind of clever, because I didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not a German speaker. That's very true. <laughs> so, we'll, we'll let you off the hook Got this me time. There. <laughs> Let's hear from Andrea. Our brother, CR, a German the chief and original of our fraternity, 
hath much and long time labored, who by reason of his poverty, although descended of noble parents, in the fifth year of his age was placed in a cloister, where he had learned indifferently the Greek and Latin tongues, was associated to a brother, P-A-L, and determined to go to the Holy Land. Although this brother died in Cyprus, and so never came to Jerusalem, yet our brother C.R. did not return, but shipped himself over and went to Damascus. According to the Rosicrucians' first manifesto, the Fama Fraternitatis, C.R. was 16 when he translated the book M in Damascus. So M is the secret initial for the secret book. It was just called M. And C.R. is Christian Rosencruz? Christian, yeah, okay. Christian Rosencruz. Uh, so he translates this book just called M, like James Bond's boss, in Damascus <laughs> from Arabian into Latin. Uh, he then traveled on to Egypt uh, and then to Fez, uh, which is in Morocco, where the elementary inhabitants communicated their secrets to him. That's all we know is that they were called the elementary inhabitants. Sounds like spirits, possibly, but it could be actual people connected up to spirits. Could it be like elementals? Do they believe yeah, in that? Yeah, it's entirely possible. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, technically that's a pagan belief, so that's ancient. That's why I didn't know. If... Yeah, so it's it's conceivable. Anyway, they passed their secrets on, and afterwards, C.R. traveled to Spain in hopes of sharing what he discovered with the learned people there. Let's hear a bit from C.R. Most learned doctors, I must regretfully inform you that you are not nearly as learned as you think you've learned. I have traveled the desert of Arabia and the fertile grassland of Africa, and I must tell you that your knowledge of nature is at best incomplete. There are many plants and fruits and beasts which have fallen beyond your notice. To complete any alchemical operation, your grasp of nature must be full enough to understand her laws, which at present, it is not. But all this fancy talking nonsense, what image do you show us here? Call you this a fruit? Spiky-haired and oblong, what call you this? Uh, an oak apple? Oh, that's a pineapple, sir. I prefer my apples unpined the way God intended it. With the world unwilling to hear his message, C.R. returned home to Germany to lick his wounds. Unable to get the wider public to accept his new understanding, he decided to share it among a smaller set of open-minded individuals, namely friends from the cloister where he'd grown up. Here, they would preserve his knowledge for use by future generations who may be more amenable to believing and making use of his higher truths. In his journeys through Arabia and Africa, he collected a treasure surpassing that of kings and emperors, but finding it not suitable for his times, he kept it guarded for posterity to uncover, and appointed loyal and faithful heirs of his arts also of his name. C.R. had himself interred in a very special kind of tomb, which André, Bessold, Hess, and company claimed that they had uncovered. They discovered a hidden door, behind which was a second door with the words post 120 anos patebo written on it uh, which is to say after 120 years i will open the vault had seven sides with seven corners each wall five feet wide and eight feet tall in the center was the tomb of cr with a great altar above it on which was written hoc universi compendium vivus mihi speculum fecci you know what's great about latin nobody speaks it so you know. Amen. Amen. I think that might be Latin, too. I don't think it is. Amen. Uh, 
uh, th- those words mean, this compendium of the universe I have made in my lifetime to be my tomb. Wow. So the tomb is the compendium? Yes. That's neat. All his secrets are the tomb itself. Yeah. He buried himself in his knowledge. Oh, shit. Inside the tomb, the crew of German intellectuals found all the books and artifacts necessary to revive CR's secret society of the Rose Cross in their time. When I die, guys. I was about to say, this is what you want, right? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Big old library. All my books. Podcast is playing constantly. It might have to be like your living room and Katie might be mad, but it'll be fine. <laughs> you don't think I'll be able to afford a sepulcher with our uh, Patreon dollars? Maybe someday. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, where were we? The Confessio. Oh, yes. The Confessio. The Confessio Fraternitatis. Sounds delicious. Uh, it's the second manifesto that was published by the group, uh, and it's a call to arms. It is an invitation uh, for any worthy individual to apply to join the revived Rosicrucian order. They're back, baby, and join them. The group has, so they say, been called by God to increase their numbers. No man's uprightness and hopes shall deceive him. Whosoever shall make himself known unto us under the seal of secrecy and desire our fraternity. There's a trick to this call, though, because if you're unworthy, the order is simply going to ignore you. To the false hypocrites, and to those that seek other things than wisdom, we say and witness by these present publicly, we cannot be made known, and be betrayed unto them. By all accounts, these Rosicrucians, if we want to call this small group of idealists Rosicrucians, never responded to any request to join their order. And there were lots of requests, taking the form of letters, newspaper editorials, and entire books dedicated to the RC brothers. That doesn't seem very secret. Also not very efficient. <laughs> right? They're just like, anyone, please, anyone, please, join us. Yeah, but, so, but they put it out, and, but then uh, if they responded, you would never be able to say. Right, because you would then be admitted. Oh, I'm just thinking, yeah. like, putting your pitch in the newspaper is probably not, like, the best route you should take. Well, well, I think that this may have been an elaborate practical joke. It's entirely possible. That seems more apt. It seems, at least from the membership of the circle, from whence it came, that the group was quite serious about their ideas, even if they weren't as serious about this group existing and getting people into it. Although, I mean, I guess to James's point there, since they're not, like, we would never know if anyone responded. So I guess it's possible that they were forming the secret group and they just kept the secret really well. People aren't good at that, though. Yeah, it seems unlikely. It's not well, human nature. Before the internet, I, I suspect it was easier. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like people talked more to each other then. Yeah, you had a lot more to say. Gossip. It's, we're coming back to it with the podcast. Mm. Yeah. Returning to the days of the renaissance when people talked a lot spreading individual opinions (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and read the fullest articulation uh, of their ideas came in the form of an allegory the chemical wedding of christian rosencruz which was ascribed to the fictional rosencruz himself but andrea claimed to have written it in his autobiography probably when he was 19 years old Uh, not that he wrote his autobiography when he was 19 but he wrote The Chemical Wedding when he was 19, and Seems then early. much later in his life. Yeah, right. That's <laughs> so much to do. Especially I guess. since he was sickly. So, like, it was mostly just, and the next day I sat in my room and gazed upon the ceiling. I turned 18. Today? And I gazed upon the ceiling. <laughs> Poor guy. Uh, so, 
We shouldn't joke. It's time of plague. So uh, let's get to the chemical wedding, shall we? Ready? Why was it called a chemical wedding? Uh, Let's save that for the end. Okay, we're going to find out. Well, that'll be a cliffhanger. Hold on to your seats. Olivia, can you take the announcement of the days? The first day. And then, so it's a seven-day thing, is the way it's <laughs> oh, outlined. Yes. Okay, okay. Just so we're clear. So seven each days. chapter is its own day. Okay, so an angelic female opens the story by delivering an invitation to a wedding to our protagonist, Christian. That night, he had an intense dream. He was in a pit, surrounded by people, desperate to get out. A rope ladder was lowered, and people climbed and clawed and fought to get to it. Christian waited on the other side until the rope came to him and was able to exit the pit this way with minimal conflict. In the morning, he dressed with four roses in his hat, grabbed some bread, salt, and water, and headed out to that wedding. To eat of salted bread and water is all a humble alchemist such as myself could possibly desire. I wonder what salted breads they shall have at the wedding, and what vessels in which to quaff water. The second day. Our protagonist passes through three gates on his way to the wedding. The first is hidden. Only by God's grace is he allowed to see it. The second is guarded by a lion, and he must trust the porters to keep him safe. Porters are just like guys who sit by gates. That sucks. That's their job. Could be worse. Yeah, I guess that's true. He could be a bathroom attendant. Or a lion tamer. I guess they were kind of doubling. The third requires him to run to keep up with a maiden who is lighting his way with a lantern, and he just barely makes it through the gate before it closes, snipping off a piece of his coat. Yeah, this is some... Indiana Jones. Yeah, right? The wedding festivities begin with a great feast. Oh, such delicacies. (laughs) Such entertainment. I hardly think my eyes nor my stomach can survive such sumptuousness. Oh, this humble alchemist must try his best to weather the most luxurious pampering. The third day. The entertainment on the third day is a great scale, which will measure the virtue of each of the guests and determine who can enter the wedding and who will be punished. Oh, right? this is fun. Yeah, I did this at my wedding. It didn't oh. go over well. A group of <laughs> braggarts <laughs> rush to be measured, and each fails miserably. So they're all like, yeah, I'm going to hop on that scale. I'm the most virtuous. And then they, they, they fail. They have aspired to worldly gain by spiritual means. That's, that's why they fail. Christian holds back, sitting with a group of men who feel, as he does, that he is unworthy. These men, when they are finally weighed, prove truly virtuous and are admitted into the wedding. Everybody else gets held back. That's it. That's as far as they were getting. Their souls are heavier than the weight on the scale because they are more substantial unlike the weak souls of the braggarts. Christian's soul is the heaviest of all. Oh, uh, I had no idea my virtues were so weighty. Perhaps this is why I have had such pains about my lower back of late. The fourth day. A curtain is drawn back, and the wedding guests meet the royal family. Before the queen is an altar containing a taper candle, fanned by a cupid who is flitting around the display, also a book, a spinning globe, a ticking clock, a fountain running with the liquid, the color of blood, and a skull in which a white snake moves perpetually through the eye holes. Yeah. (laughs) I've seen that before. (laughs) 
I think in a Bugs Bunny cartoon or something. Yes, yes. Bugs Bunny did love to include this altar in his various this adventures. This is my dream altar, I think. <laughs> Olivia just sees this when she wow. closes her eyes. After the play about a sex-driven princess rescued by a virtuous prince... They lop off the heads of the... That's what I was going to do this semester, but we had to cancel all the shows. Oh, yeah, I was thinking about doing that play. But what can you do? Next semester. So after this play, they lop off the heads of the king and queen and the four other members of the royal family, and they place them in six coffins. So everybody watches a play, and then we have a mass execution. Then the executioner's head is lopped off. And he's placed in a chest. No one is immune here. And each coffin and the chest are placed on their own ships, and they are all set out to sea. Why did they have to be virtuous to come see this? This display? Yeah. Well, because you wouldn't want him enjoying it too much. I suppose so, but what's the purpose? Oh, yeah. are we getting there? We're getting there. We're okay. getting there. Okay. Oh. Yeah. This humble alchemist has seen many a thing in his time, but if I'm being honest, I must admit that was super weird. The fifth day. Christian is brought to a secret tomb beneath the castle. It is the tomb of Venus. Here at the tomb, Christian is taught a lesson that love causes us to come undone, but the act of coming undone brings us new fortune. Ah, Venus, I am shot through the heart, and you're to blame. You give love a hermetic name. The sixth day. Christian helps to uncover an egg from which a magical bird hatches. They kill the bird and feed its blood to a pair of statues that have been formed from molds. One is in the shape of a king and the other of a queen. Uh, As they take the blood, the statues grow larger and eventually come to life, younger and more beautiful than they had been before. And they act as though they had only been asleep all the time they'd been beheaded and out to sea. Seriously, you guys, your heads were most piteously severed and you were way dead. But now you are not, which is most strange, but... But also pretty cool. The seventh day. Christian is admitted into a secret brotherhood and goes home. I am become a Rosicrucian Christian Rosencruz at last. Huzzah! <laughs> and then he kisses everyone and goes skipping down the path, strewing flowers and Whee! chocolates. And chocolates. <laughs> Uh, Okay, so in his comment, so what does all this mean, James wants to know? In his commentary on the chemical wedding, Adam McLean breaks down the highly symbolic alchemical process described across the seven days as the union of male and female principles to achieve the perfection or enlightenment sought by the alchemist. Christian is literally attending a wedding after all. The masculine, right? So you got that so far? Uh, The title. Symbolic wedding. Yes, it's a symbolic wedding of male and female principles. The masculine work appears to be very well in hand, but the castle reveals that there is a loss of connection to the feminine, and that loss of connection must be repaired. Venus, the quintessential feminine goddess, has died, and she has been confined to a a tomb underneath the castle. Her tomb teaches Christian a lesson about giving himself over to love. The nature of this love is not purely spiritual, though. It is also sensual. We can see this in the play within the story, the sort of play within a play. A very lustful princess is seduced and brought away from her prince, but despite the fact that she has been taken in every conceivable way by another man, the prince still embraces and marries her. This is a Renaissance context, right? And he's saying... Sure, uh, you done been penetrated by this other dude, but that's okay. I'm going to love you. I'm going to take you home. This is very progressive, right? (laughs) (laughs) You are not pure, but that doesn't matter. Life isn't pure. Existence isn't pure. I can still love and embrace. 
this is the alchemist's quest, not to purify himself completely from his connection to matter and material desire, but to accept the sensual and the earthly as an essential component of the divine. After all, when the king and queen return, Christian remarks on their beauty. There is a sensual pleasure in the spiritual. The alchemical secret is not a Gnostic or Cathar separation from the things of this earth, but a marrying of the non-material and the material. The alchemist spiritualizes matter. I love this. So is all the death just to be like rebirth? Why is all the... Okay, I was like... It's like a liminal like activity, right? It's like a gateway where the spiritual meets the material. Yes, it's breaking over that boundary. Even when you think the death like tarot card... It's like, it just, it doesn't mean necessarily dying. It means like a dying a changing, to the past, a rebirth. Yeah. A, dying yeah. to what you were, being yeah. reborn in something new. I, I mean, it, there are like a billion ways to interpret this, uh, particularly the death and all this this weird progression of beheading. Like there's a lot but, of murder, and I'm yeah, not sure then, why. But then they got golemized <laughs> and brought back to life. Brought yeah. back to life in the mud people. Yeah, more or less. So as I said, I personally love this theology, uh, and it should appeal to many of our pagan listeners as well. It should sound familiar, right, Olivia? Yeah. Uh, But it's also quintessentially Christian. Think about this. God took physical form in the Christian mindset. The Rosicrucian is simply working through exactly what that means for a believer seeking to follow in Jesus' path. Matter material can't be evil if God takes material form. And, And this is a standard, I think, of a lot of Christian belief. That's why they persecuted the Cathars and the Gnostics. The black magic conspiracy theory that we've been working through. So remember, we're in the conspiracy series. Oh, that's right. why we've been talking about the Rosicrucians all this time. Uh, I, I did this with the Templars too. Like midway through the we episode, forgot. I said, "Oh yeah, we're, we're supposed to be talking <laughs> about conspiracy." Okay, so uh, if you've been listening along, uh, good. If not, uh, you might want to check back at this point. Pause this episode. Go ahead and check back with the Nesta Helen Webster, the Black Magic Illuminati. Then do the Templars, and then come meet up with me here again. Because all this time we've been talking about the notion that there's a black magic conspiracy theory. Uh, And according to this black magic theory, the Rosicrucians have one goal, which is to undermine religion, specifically Christianity, more specifically Protestant Christianity, which is, according to modern, uh, many modern conspiracy theorists, this is considered to be the one true religion. And I use Helen Webster from the, the 1920s as the sort of godmother of all these ideas that there is a satanic conspiracy to underlie, that, that underlying all of these Illuminati movements. So it's Protestant. Okay. Perhaps the secrets divulge in the tomb of a master Rosicrucian who studied in the Middle East and Africa, just following this line of thought. A master with theories on the transmutation of metals and the elixir of life. Perhaps such a person might lead his members of the order away from traditional Protestantism. Makes sense. He's hanging out with those elementals and what have you. Except that we know the early members of the Rosicrucian order were actually devout Protestants. If you remember the beginning of the episode, they were on board with Protestantism and rationalism and were not on board with Catholicism. But they were very radical. In that, at that time period, because of the dominance of Catholicism. But they're really on the vanguard of pushing Protestantism forward. The Fama, uh, which is another of their manifestos, is a bit more suspect, uh, though, because it makes references to secret knowledge Jesus passed on to certain believers. Only particular believers. Potentially a message that opposes official Christianity. The Confessio, though, the other of the manifestos, clears all this up with its declarations in favor of the Reformed Church. In the second paragraph of the Confessio, uh, 
the our Andrie condemns the Eastern and Western blasphemers against our Lord Jesus Christ, the Muslims, and the Pope. The unclean babblers he drives in the wilderness and solitary places, that which is the right reward of the Romish seducers, who have vomited forth their blasphemies against Christ, and yet as yet do not abstain from their lies in this clear shining light. The best means to join the order is to spend more time reading the Bible. We do admonish everyone for to read diligently and continually the Holy Bible, for he that taketh all his pleasures therein, he shall know that he prepared for himself an excellent way to come to our fraternity. This is a very strange attitude for an anti-Christian society to take. If the Rosicrucians were involved in any sort of conspiracy at all, it was a Protestant conspiracy. In a now fairly controversial piece of scholarship, Francis Yates makes the argument that the Rosicrucians were part of a plot to replace the Catholic Bohemian Emperor, who had pursued a program to eliminate Germany's Protestant churches with a Protestant monarch, Frederick the Elector Palatinate. Good old Fred. In the 18th century, we're going to do a little bit of, of Renaissance politics here, so... Ooh, my favorite. All right, I know. We had to do medieval politics last episode, and we're going to do some Renaissance politics, but I'm going to try to move quick. Try to ask questions, you guys, if you you can't follow. I'll do my best. I'm not an expert on this stuff. In the 18th century, a society directly inspired by the Rosicrucians, the Golden and Rosy Cross, that was the name of the society. It was created as an alternative to the first and arguably only organization to ever call itself the Illuminati. So the Illuminati existed at this time period. Remember the Illuminati? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and they were all secret, trying to bring down governments and religions and yeah. tear the world apart. Anarchy. Anarchy, till they got struck by lightning. According to historian Christopher McIntosh, the Golden and Rosy Cross was created as a more conservative group as opposed to Adam Weishaupt's revolutionary group, the Illuminati. Unlike the Illuminati, they did not seek to overthrow religion or government. It was a group for people who had been left feeling cold by Enlightenment rationalism, as well as austere Lutheranism, but were unwilling to go back to the grand mysteries and symbols of the Catholic Church. In other words, the Golden and Rosy Cross offered symbolism and mystery to Protestants to keep them from reverting to Catholicism. They were like, where's the magic at? They're like, we still got it. We got a little bit right here. Yeah. Just a little bit. Not too much. A little bit. Their most powerful member was Prince Frederick William, who joined the order in 1781 after being healed by a Rosicrucian brother, Major Johann Rudolf von Bischofswerder. What a name. Right? So I I do want to clarify, we're in a different time period. If we're talking about the original Rosicrucians, there were no people who called themselves Rosicrucian. But if we jump forward to 1781, that's like 180 years, there are now these groups, these fraternities that are starting to organize who are taking the name Rosicrucian as like a brand. So the Golden and Rosy Cross is actually trying to observe Rosicrucian principles and be Rosicrucian as much as possible. But then there are these other people that are calling themselves Rosicrucians. Illuminati. Illuminati. And they are not on board. No. So these guys actually, this it's like everyone's forming little fraternities in the 18th century. They're not in the early Renaissance when the Rosicrucians are born. But if we jump forward a couple hundred years, everybody wants to start a fraternity. And that's going to last for 150 years until like Pascal Beverly Randolph, remember our very first episode, yes. formed Rosicrucian orders in the United States. So a lot of these people, long after the Rosicrucians have disappeared, I mean, the actual literal historical people who wrote these manifestos these people are taking those manifestos and they're saying oh this is so cool i want to have my own rosicrucian order let's do it let's all get together and be rosicrucians see what i mean yes yeah 
It's like a fun way to have a clubhouse. <laughs> so, but they also have like these serious ideas. So the Order of the Rosy Cross, the Golden Rosy Cross, calling themselves Rosicrucian, they're performing these healings, they're doing this symbol stuff, but they're also maintaining Protestantism in the face of, of the lack of Catholic symbol in these people's lives. Okay, so where were we? Bischofsverder. <laughs> yep. So Bischofsverder served as Frederick William's personal advisor, and along with fellow Rosicrucian Johann Christoph Wallner, became the power behind the throne when Frederick William became king of Prussia in 1786. Where's Prussia? It's Germany. Okay. Yeah, before there was Germany, there was a couple like of different areas, like Germany. Bavaria, Prussia, they okay. organized into Germany. Nice. Nice. I thought you were a geography person. I am, but I'm a modern day geography person. (laughs) Prussia, I thought, was more like a Poland. That was my, that's why I asked. It's all right there. Right. As you know, modern geography person. (laughs) (laughs) So, and that's why Hitler could walk into Poland so easy, because right there. But we'll get to Hitler next episode. Anyway. Okay. Let's put Hitler aside. This is not the History Channel. Put him aside. (laughs) Frederick William uh, was the only monarch to consider himself a brother of the Rosy Cross. He was an avid defender of the church as well. Although he lived a fairly scandalous personal life, marrying, divorcing, and marrying again to women who were already married, and marrying again while still married, he believed, following Wallner's influence, that Prussia had become irreligious and that it could only thrive if the church was restored. He suppressed anti-religious propaganda and forbid the Christian sects from warring with each other. So, not a bad guy from a Christian standpoint. If we're going to have an anti-Christian conspiracy, this is this is not a good candidate, because their one king was pretty pro-Christian, even if in his personal life he was screwing around a bit. Got me? Yes. Okay, we're going to try a new segment today, guys. Get hype. Ooh, Get, that's the thing the kids say, get hype, right? Can I say that? Is that old? Yeah. It's, is that still? It's old I feel and like it's hype is just, that's an old we word. We said it. It's not, well, like, it's in a way, but we said cowabunga, dude. We say turn. You did not say that. Uh, you yeah, never I, said that, I was a child seriously. when we, yeah, no, I don't think I knew it, but <laughs> I probably did, because I was like four when the tw- teenage Ninja Toodles. Yeah, maybe I was six. Okay, cowabunga, anyway. dude. Let's get All to right. this. So this is the new segment. Everyone's wondering while we're dicking around dicking around uh our this is a new segment that we're doing mid-episode uh it's called the occult take oh and oh. this is the occult take the occ- yeah, there you oh. go oh yeah olivia you're gonna have to work on something for this although maybe james will back I you mean, up there james maybe you can harmonize oh, uh what we've done is uh we've sent off a bit of text to one of our friends in the wide world of occult podcasting their instructions are to read the text and offer their take in a minute or two. So I've told them, you know, not to go research or anything. I've given them a little bit of background, sent the quote, and said, what do you think? So uh, our first participant in this is uh, our good friend, Rachel, one of our first uh, podcasting friends uh, when we started the podcast. Rachel Wilkinson over at Life Mancy, yeah. Uh, So I have sent her a piece of the chemical wedding, uh, and so to sort of... lighten the mood and and break the conversation up a bit so that our audience can reflect their brains. We're going to let Rachel give us, uh, first read the quote to us and then give us her occult take. Rachel? So a couple of weeks ago, Rob sends me an email. It's like, hey, we want to have some fellow podcasters contribute. If you're interested, let me know. And so I'm like, uh, heck yes. I gotta say, Occult Confessions was my, well, it was sort of like, Baby's first occulty podcast. I found them one evening when I was looking to see what sort of more academic occult shows were out there because I, <laughs> I was 
I was super over another show with a couple of witchy women talking about the divine feminine in their vaginas. And not that I don't love the divine feminine or my vagina. It's just like, do we need six podcasts about it? I don't know. I don't know. So I was looking for something that had some more meat to it. And I'm also really amusing myself at the thought of Rob pondering this little digression and whether he'll use it. But anyway, I actually remember the first time I listened to Occult Confessions and I I was in my car about to pick up a friend of mine to go to a witch's market here in Houston. And there was just all this cross chatter and Olivia was screeching about something and James was having this like, I hate all of you moment. I don't even know what it was and I don't even remember what about. But I I wasn't entirely sure I enjoyed myself, <laughs> which you know, was terrible to admit. But I couldn't stop myself from listening to the next one and then the next one after that. And so here we are today. Rob emails me back and it says, below is a quote from the chemical wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz. And I have no idea what was going on in my brain, but I read it as him wanting me to talk about my chemical romance. Yeah. So, all right, here we go. Now I saw a rich bed, ready-made, hung about with fine curtains of which he opened one, and there I beheld Venus, quite naked, lying there in such magnificence and beauty that I was paralyzed. To this day I do not know whether it was a statue or a dead person lying there, for she was completely still, and I dared not touch her. I noticed a tablet behind the bed on which was written, When the fruit of my tree has completely melted, I shall awake and be the mother of a king. So my thoughts. My first thought is, um, yikes. And then my second thought is, ugh, patriarchy. So now that I've gotten that out of my system, and admittedly now I do kind of wish we were talking about the Black Parade, let's see. So if this is an allegory, and love is an obstacle to spiritual transcendence, as much as my initial thoughts went, oh damn, this is real rapey, Maybe this is more about the character recognizing that he has to get in touch with his own, oh, God damn it, divine feminine, (sighs) of course. Or his mother didn't hug him enough as a child, who knows. But really, perhaps the point is to say he must revive this part of himself because the fruit of my tree would seem to suggest like a child. If the fruit of my tree has completely melted, that melted that word it's so strange warmed a warm heart okay when you finally awaken a warm heart like compassion and being a king is like mastering yourself it reminds me of the king of cups in tarot the king of cups card is one who has mastered their emotions so i'm gonna call the moral of this allegory compassion is next to kingliness And when you can give love and accept love freely, you reign supreme. All right. Again, that was uh, Rachel Wilkinson over at Life Mancy. Go ahead and check out Life Mancy. Thanks, Rachel. We love Rachel. So uh, let's carry on to uh, back to our Rosicrucian story. So that was just a little break. Lighten the mood. Thank you. And uh, now let's get back to the story. We're back. See, I promised to do this, and I'm doing it, right? I'm, I'm, I'm keeping it steady. I'm doing this. My palate has been refreshed. Delightful. The Rosicrucian movement was not free from scandal. There were many pretenders who, contrary to the priorities outlined in the Fama and Confessio, claimed to be able to make gold by alchemical means, <laughs> or oh. to have discovered the elixir of life. No, 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 no. Those are big. Those are big claims. In Paris in 1623, placards appeared around the city announcing the arrival of the Brotherhood of the Rosicrucians. 
rosy cross. So now we're back in the Renaissance. Well, now they're just being announced when they come to town. The French believed the Rosicrucians worshipped a demonic invisible one, capital invisible, capital one, by abjuring... Not a sponsor. By abjuring Christianity and all the rites and sacraments of the church, giving them the power to travel wherever they wanted with purses full of money. So they're like... The French are like, don't trust these Rosicrucians because their god is invisible. And has money. And God shouldn't have money. I think that that's what Jesus said, yeah. Yeah. So the philosopher René Descartes was so worried about being accused of uh, being a Rosicrucian that after he took a trip to Germany, you know, ground zero Rosicrucian land, he went out of his way to spend time with his friends in spite of the fact that he really didn't like to be around people. He preferred to be alone. Uh, so that no one would suspect that he was meeting with a secret society. That's like a whole mood. That's like the <laughs> biggest mood I think I've ever heard on this That's podcast. mostly Olivia when she shows up to podcast That's with l- us. Yeah. <laughs> so no one like, suspects her of murdering anyone <laughs> in her backyard. <laughs> this is a great alibi, she says. <laughs> Look at all these people. In France, accusing someone of being a Rosicrucian was as damning and as ridiculous as accusing someone of being a witch. This may have been the source for the conspiracy theorists' notion that the group was anti-religious, but the concept of Rosicrucians as witches belonged to mythological rather than historical interpretations of the order. With the French, we see the start of a conspiracy theory that willfully misinterprets the Rosicrucians in order to paint their alchemical and occult mission as anti-religious. The occult conspiracy is not interested in engaging with the historical Rosicrucians, the actual individuals who published the manifestos uh, but did not actually form societies, or the men who established orders modeled after the imaginary society, the two groups we were talking about, right? Renaissance guys, 18th century guys, separated, separated in time, but both operating under the mantle of Rosicrucian, and neither one really matching anything like a black magic conspiracy. So the black magic conspiracy has got to go to France and pick out all these witch cult rumors swirling around the Rosicrucians to call the Rosicrucians black magic. It's the equivalent of us reading witch trial manuals and saying, oh, well, witches totally could make your virile member member disappear. Absolutely. Witches in 1600 made penises pop just off and fly across the room. They could do that. 100%. 100%. Because this witchcraft manual says it's true. Yep. Well, now, is that a witch? I'm sorry, witch trial manual. How to conduct a witch trial. We're asking the anti-witch what a witch is like. We're asking the anti-Rosicrucian what a Rosicrucian is like, rather than asking the Rosicrucians themselves. Well, this, this is very common in conspiracy theory across the board. Informing any occult conspiracy that is anti-Christian and includes the Rosicrucians, the conspiracy theorist must prefer to engage with the imaginary Rosicrucians, the Rosicrucians of myth, rather than documentary evidence. But it wasn't just the enemies of Rosicrucian that engaged with them as myth. Admirers also cast the Rosicrucians in a light that doesn't reflect their actual historical existence, often in the name of forming their own Rosicrucian orders. This is what we've sort of been talking about. So first, uh, well, not first. First, we had those golden rosy cross guys. But then we had American occult pioneer P.B. Randolph, our first episode sex magician. He formed a number of Rosicrucian lodges that followed his system of sex magic and overlooked the contents of the Fama, the Confessio, the Chemical Wedding, any of it. The Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, the quintessential occult revival organization in turn-of-the-century England, considered itself at least partially Rosicrucian, although it strayed far from the Christian Protestantism professed in the original documents. But the modern society most closely associated with the Rosicrucians today is the AMORC, 
or, and I, I had to write this down because of our acronym problems, <laughs> the ancient and mystical order Rose Crucis, founded by Harvey Spencer Lewis in 1915. Lewis's views of Rosicrucianism are more in line with the way the occult conspiracist prefers to see the Rosicrucians than the actual 17th century German Rosicrucians who started the movement. Conveniently, Lewis more or less squeezes these Germans out of Rosicrucian history so that Nesta Helen Webster and her fellow conspiracy theorists don't really need to worry much about them as they labor to trace the history of the Illuminati through the Rosicrucians. So our modern Rosicrucian is actually helping the conspiracy theorist. But I, I actually, I like this guy and I like his ideas. I'm, I'm with him for the most part, although he is a very creative and inventive historian, which is not a compliment for a historian. A-M-O-R-C. Let's get to it. Harvey Spencer Lewis was born in Frenchtown, New Jersey in 1883. He discovered the Rosicrucians while conducting psychical research that ended up exposing 50 fraudulent mediums at the turn of the century. Way to go, Harvey. After a trip to France, he claimed to have been initiated into a Rosicrucian order and given instructions to start an order in America. P.B. Randolph does a very similar thing. This was the A-M-O-R-C. Amork. I think I'll call them that from now on. Hey, Mark. Hey, Mark. I think that, is that okay? I don't know. Yeah. We probably have listeners who are in a Mark, so let us know if... Let us know if it's okay. If it's okay, now that we're just doing it. Yeah. Lewis is... This is what we do. We, uh, we, we do it, and then we ask yes, if it's we, okay. Yeah, we ask for forgiveness, not permission. Lewis's history of the Rosicrucians uh, varies from the histories recorded by non-Rosicrucian scholars on many crucial points. He traces the origins of the movement not to Renaissance Germany, but get ready for this ancient Egypt. I saw that coming. That's very different. The 18th dynasty, circa 1580 BCE, oddly about the same number of years behind the year one as the German Rosicrucians were ahead of it. Isn't that weird? Symmetry. Symmetry. Ahmos I organized a secret society of the... Okay, so this is the theory, right? I'm going to just go ahead and abandon any historical analysis. I'm going to do some historical analysis, but let me dive into the theory here. Ahmos I organized a secret society, says Lewis, of the most learned, who gathered with him to share the doctrines and principles of science. This society, 1580 BCE science, just to clarify. This society, they didn't have CERN or anything. This society <laughs> became a form of, it was just sand. Uh, they shot sand as hard as they could using a Ow. slingshot. This society became a formal brotherhood with both male and female members under Tutmos III 50 years later. Then Amenhotep IV, the originator of a short-lived transition to monotheism in Egypt, built a temple and established a monastic order under the symbols of the rose and cross. Yeah. The rose of is making faces that you can't see. <laughs> I just, I don't. Okay, yeah, keep going. <laughs> the Rosicrucians, in Lewis's view, owe their existence to Amenhotep IV, who reigned from 1350 to 1325. Remember, we're counting forward because of the... Before the Common yeah. Era. Uh, and uh, he instituted the worship of Aten, the sun god, as the sole deity in Egypt, replacing the vast and complex pantheon of Egyptian gods. This is for real. This really did happen. Amenhotep, named for the formerly reigning sun god Amon, changed his name to Akhenaten in honor of his monotheistic sun god Aten. He became the sole messenger and mediator with Aten, undoing centuries of Egyptian tradition in which the people interacted directly with their gods through offerings and prayer. So not so cool, Aten. Not so cool, Akhenaten. Not only did the gods disappear, replaced by Aten, but the people had no direct access to this new god. 
In contrast to the former gods, Aten also wasn't especially personable. So now I'm getting into real, this is actual history. This is not part of the Amorc history. This is real, what actually happened with this fascinating Egyptian pharaoh. So Aten's predecessor and eventually successor after the death of Akhenaten, Amon, had been depicted with humanoid and animal features. This is the god we're used to in Egypt right. before this, this guy comes along. This is the famous guy. Famous god. Uh, and also many of the gods are depicted with human and animal features. Isis, Osiris are human, but fo- folks like Toth and Seth have animal heads and yeah. human bodies. So, he was shown as a bearded man or a man with the head of a ram. Like Osiris, Amon had a family. His consort, Mut, the mother goddess, and his son, Konsu, the lunar god. Aten, by contrast, was the disc of the sun. Oh. So, did he have arms or legs? Nothing. He's had a disc. <laughs> okay. That was it. So, you see, for the Egyptian people, they're like, whoa. Like a frisbee? What where, happened? Where <laughs> now we're worshiping this frisbee. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, and Aten was the giver of life. The disc was the giver of life. He was represented uh, also by the orb of the sun, which had no body parts uh, and no way to hear or receive offerings from the people because he didn't have arms to take the offerings or ears to hear them. That's rough. So they had to rely on the king for all messages from the gods. And so loyalty to the king or pharaoh translated to piety to the gods. A good afterlife was assured to those who the king favored, since the king and not the gods now decided the fate of the soul after death. Ah, good move. Right? There's some power. Hakenaten withdrew funding from all temples to the other gods. And in the case of the Theban triad, Amun, Mut, and Konsu, he had their names struck from their temples and the tops of their obelisks destroyed. Oh, dude, you don't mess with the temples, though. No, you don't mess with those temples. This guy and Henry VIII would get along really well. Right? No, they don't care. But Henry VIII was successful, I think, and historically. <laughs> this guy, not so much. They both just, yeah. So our, back to Harvey Spencer Lewis, right? He loved this guy and saw this revolution as a good thing, probably more for the monotheism than for the concentration of power in the hands of a single man, though. Lewis isn't American, doesn't like that concentration of power mm. with him. Uh, but also this whole, but, but unfortunately, this didn't go over well with the Egyptians at the time. So Lewis looks back and says, this was so cool. And the Egyptians right then were saying, this is, this is the worst part of our the, history. Yeah, we are living the worst what? part of our history, said people in the midst of plague. Amenhotep IV, or Akhenaten, was succeeded by Smekhare. <laughs> oh, God. Smekhare? I don't know. That seems better. Smekhare, who reigned for only Egyptian listeners. Let us know. I don't think we have those, but maybe we might have one or two. We should get some. This is an English podcast. Who reigned for only two years, uh, Smekhare, uh, carried a new, the new religion not even a step forward. And then, now this is, this is fascinating, Tutankhaten succeeded him. Tutankhaten, a young king, likely influenced by his advisors, reversed Akhenaten's religious revival and changed his name to Tutankhamun to reflect the shift in worship away from Aten and back to the traditional Amun and the other deities of Egypt's pantheon. From Lewis's perspective, Akhenaten was too far ahead of his time, and so his ideas had to be preserved in secret by a select society of monks working under the symbol of the rose and the cross. Why not a son? Why not the? I know that's a good question. The sun's really cool. Be good to Everybody ask Lewis knows that, what it is. But he's way dead. It makes more sense if your Rosicrucian order is connected to this guy, though, if he's got this symbol. Oh yeah, the yeah, rose yeah, and the cross. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're stuck with that. That's yeah. a lot of people use the sun. But the cross, and we are not even Jesus. Like we're th- we're way before Jesus, but we're using the cross already. What was the rose part? What did that mean again? Why? Well, they were in a desert. 
rose would be like <laughs> prosperity, right? Life. Well, I, just I, mean, I, I don't know. I mean, even it, the ro- it, it's imaginary that they actually had a rose and a cross. I guess mean uh, just Egypt. the group. Lewis is saying they had it, but I, we have no way of proving this. I mean, like the Rosicrucians. Why like, would they use the rose, the rose and the cross? That's a good question. I mean, it's a oh, secret okay. symbol. So there's a common thing. Uh, there's a, you know, blooming, turning up to the sun. Rose is also beautiful. I mean, if we're thinking about the sensual and the spiritual, that's the rose and the cross. I mean, I'm just spitballing here. Right, but roses not also to, die sorry, one petal at a time. It's a good question. This is a Rosicrucian episode. I just it's thought a, about it It's good it to reflect now. on it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, Anyhow, in my reading, I guess I haven't come across a, an exact analysis of the symbol. But like, is it the color red that does it? Oh, like I think what? there's something to this beauty and spirit kind of thing. In 1000 BCE, Salomon came to El Amarna, the city where Akhenaten had established his capital, and left after attaining the fourth degree in the Rosicrucian order. He went on to tutor a pharaoh's son, and eventually ended his travels in Palestine, where he built a great temple, modeled after the one in El Amarna except that the cross he had planned for was removed. Salomon, or Solomon... I was gonna ask, but... ...became the progenitor of his own order, now called the Freemasons, replacing the rose and cross with the sun. While Sol- that's what I'm saying. <laughs> you know? Like, they that's did it. the change I would have James is a reincarnation <laughs> of Solomon, the founder of the Freemasons. Freemasons, we found him. Come on down. I mean, after the plague is over. While Solomon was established in uh, an incomplete version of Rosicrucianism in Freemasonry, the Essenes, writers of the Dead Sea Scrolls, were carrying forward the actual Rosicrucian tradition. Let's hear from Lewis. This is actually Sean Priest who did this in advance. So we did get a second voice in here. Yay! The Essenes Brotherhood in Palestine, together with other branches of the Great White Brotherhood, were preparing for the coming of the Great Avatar, who is to be the reincarnation of Zoroaster, one of the famous avatars of the Brotherhood in centuries past. Jesus was born into a Gentile Essene community at Galilee as the Brotherhood expected, and ever afterward became the center of their activities. Is this the Jesus that uh, I know? Yep. Okay. Yep. I'm a. Uh, Jesus? Uh, the Christ one. The, yeah, that one. Yep. yep. The Great White Brotherhood did not establish the Christine Church as part of its activities because it was interested in the work of all religious movements in all lands and did not become a part of any of them. Here we start to get to the heart of Lewis's anti-Christian ideology, and it isn't overtly anti-Christian, actually. Jesus is a Rosicrucian and the center of the Rosicrucian's program, but the religion founded in his name is not the only true religion, and Christianity, or the Christine Church, yeah, does not even have the full truth of Jesus's message. That is reserved for the secret Rosicrucian societies. Rosicrucianism is a universal monotheistic practice, preserving a grand tradition that far predated Jesus, and a truth that extends beyond what Christendom knows of Jesus's teachings. This is what a conspiracy theorist would call anti-religious. Really, in my opinion, it's just a bit of condescension toward the outer order of organized churches of Christianity. Do you see? Yeah. It's just like, you guys have the cute religion. I've got the real one. There's nothing wrong with Christianity. Mine's just a little bit better. Yeah. Because nobody knows about it. Secrets. Hipsters. But insofar... Yes, Lewis was a hipster. But insofar as it creates a space for theology that contradicts or supersedes Christian teachings, which, to the Christian conspiracy theorist, is the final truth, 
our ideas from Lewis must necessarily be anti-Christian. You see? So it's, it's condescending to Christians. Therefore, it's anti-Christian. But it isn't really. Next, Lewis's history must dispense with the problem of the German Rosicrucians. If, as Lewis says, the movement started in ancient Egypt, what do we do with the Germans who believed they had started it in 1608? That's, that's a problem. Delete. Delete. He does. Listen how. This is fascinating. He's a smart. He's a clever guy. The Amark revision resituates the German movement as a cyclical event that had happened before and was misinterpreted as a revolutionary idea. Lewis says that in the first century BCE, the order established a rule to have alternating periods of outer activity and inner activity. This sounds familiar. Where have I heard this before? I don't know. Oh. How would I know that, James? Okay. <laughs> oh, you mean on this podcast? Yeah. I don't. I, I might. I don't know. I'm not that good today. I'm fighting. I'm fighting a world of plague. Okay. Yeah. Each period would last 108 years for a 216-year cycle. This would give the impression that the previous and current outer orders were completely unconnected. Ah. Oh. Wait. What? Yeah. 108 and it's 216. Oh wait, math. Got it. I'm here. I'm sorry. For 108 years, we're active. And then for 108 years, we're silent. And then the next 108 years, we're active again. So it looks like every outcropping of the Rosicrucians is a completely independent idea that is unconnected to the earlier ones. During periods of inactivity, no new members were admitted except the families of current members. The cycles were unique to each Grand Lodge, of which each country had one. The traditional... So each country is also operating on its own calendar. Oh, my God. The traditional means of reopening an order was to issue an announcement by word of mouth or after the printing press uh, to go ahead and print that. Uh, the tomb had been opened in which the body of a great master, CRC, was found and the discoverers would establish a secret order based on the contents of the tomb, etc., etc. So uh, what we saw with the German Rosicrucians is just the beginning of an, the outer order again after it had been dormant. Says Louise. Yeah. In 17th century Germany, this created the impression that a new order had been created when in fact it had not. Tomb and body were not literal, but allegorical. So there never was a tomb. There never was a Christian. It was an allegory to bring the truths of Rosicrucianism, which go all the way back to Akhenaten, to the present day people. I guess this is a clever way of going about it, though. It's pretty <laughs> I'll creative. Give him that. Yeah, it's I like creative it. I think interpretation. It's super cool. Not great history, but yes, super cool. I mean,. It, Anyway, the advent of the printing press uh, meant this most recent coming out brought about a craze unlike anything the Rosicrucians had ever seen before and resulted in the distribution of a lot of misinformation. Andrier studied with a high Rosicrucian officer, but he did not author the pamphlets that launched the craze. The real author of the pamphlets that brought about the revival in Germany was none other than Sir Francis Bacon, who was imperator for the order in England and various parts of Europe at the time. Sir Francis Bacon? Bacon. Along with Bacon, Simon Studion, a correspondent with Dr. Hess, who had hosted the historical writers of the Rosicrucian manifestos, was the real Rosicrucian in that particular bunch, says Lewis. He was the, Lewis says all this, he He was the author of the Neometria, that obscure book of prophecies. Remember I mentioned that? I don't know if you, but I mentioned it very briefly. Nope. The Naomi, so it's a book of prophecies this guy wrote. Thank you. It was completed in 1604, the same year that Christian Rosicruz's tomb was supposed to have been opened, leading some historians, including Lewis, to conclude that the Neometria was actually a Rosicrucian text. Mm. The title is Greek for The Measure of the Temple. 
Studion identified himself as one of two prophets, Luther being the first, right? Luther, then Studion. Between them, they usher in the revelation. The age of the Holy Spirit, according to Joachim of Fiore's Three Ages, was about to begin. We talk about this in our uh, Apocalypse series. The reign of the Antichrist would end in 1620, and the Messianic time would begin in 1623. This is all in Studion's Neometria. Uh, he laid out the existence of what he called the Militia Crucifera Evangelica, which he believed Studion had founded. This was a group of Protestant princes devoted to defending Protestantism against its Catholic enemies and preparing for a new era. Interestingly, such a league did come into being, led by Elizabeth I of England, Emperor Rudolf II, and Henry IV of France. This was a real thing. Uh, And it defended the true meaning of the cross and the religious program of the true Rosicrucians, Protestantism. Here, at least to some extent, Lewis's mythological version overlaps with actual historical events in a confederacy that suggests the elite co-religionists of the Brotherhood of the Rosy Cross were the monarchs of Europe. The Protestant monarchs. I would watch this movie. Right? Yeah. It's pretty cool. Hands down. All right. Let's analyze this, shall we? Santalize? What'd you say? Let's analyze this, oh, okay. shall we? Yeah, yeah. We could sanitize it. it, though. We should sanitize it. We should sanitize oh. it, especially. We're analyzing, living. but sanitary. It oh. may be that Lewis's version of history is correct, and there is, in fact, an unbroken line of occult teaching passing from person to person and group to group, including the likes of Hermes Tresmegistus, Pythagoras, Solomon, and Jesus of Nazareth. Helena Blavatsky, one of my favorites, entertains this idea with her Serpents and Secret Masters, see our Blavatsky series. In the realm of Enochian magic, Mathers and Crowley, Olivia's favorite people, tie back to John Dee, some of our listeners' favorite people, person, who is inspired by Enoch himself in the dark recesses of prehistory. So we can see all these chains, right, of connection between occultists going through history. Would we call this syncretic? Like, syncretic? Like, Which, oh, uh, Amork? No, just, just, well, yeah. Rosicrucianism, yeah. In, Rosicrucianism general. in general. I think it's possible to conceive of it that way, although they would consider themselves just Christian. Dumb it down, what did you just say to me? Which part? What is, is it syncretic? syncretic? Oh, is it a blending of religious traditions? Oh. Uh, I think Lewis might consider it a, a syncretic practice. Uh, we can't ask him. He's dead. But I think he would probably view this because he views all religion, you know, as coming together. Right. That's sort of like us. I, I like this. I do like this guy. Like, he has a lot in common with us philosophically. But, yeah, maybe. But maybe. His, his ten, his, he tends to try to rewrite the history a little bit. Yeah. Which is not uncommon. I mean, a cult, like I'm saying, Mathers, Crowley, Blavatsky, everyone's doing this a little bit, creating their own timeline. Outside the evidence-generating space of recorded history, which James's voice some support for, the secretiveness of the Rosicrucians unrolls a canvas on which not anything, but many different things can be painted. And there is no way to confirm or deny them. They have to be believed. And as subjects and products of belief, these stories reside more in the realm of subjective human meaning than objective human history. Reality itself is colored by the subjective perspective of human experiencers and observers. But a Rosicrucian reality, much like a Knight Templar reality, requires more mediation because it is more hidden from our intersubjective or communal gaze that we're sharing together. The Rosicrucians created a hidden order that insisted on staying hidden when it refused to form into any identifiable groups for more than a hundred years. As time passed, the myth space grew, while outsiders, which were pretty much everyone since no one was ever admitted, imagined their way into the secretive void. After 300 years, the end products of this imagining took two forms. 
For the occult-minded, there was Lewis's AMORC, with its history of an, of an ancient history historical order. For the anti-occult, there was Nesta Helen Webster's dark conspiracy to purge religion and spread anarchy throughout the land. So, are the Rosicrucians agents of the New World Order intent on purging Protestant Christianity from the face of the earth? Nah. Good guess. If we take the Rosicrucians from a strictly historical standpoint as a group of German Renaissance intellectuals defending the nascent Protestant revolution against Romish popery, then the conspiracy is completely incoherent. It makes no sense at all. While I'm a big fan of the chemical wedding, and I can understand the Fama and Confessio as products of their time, I'm far more sympathetic, though, to Lewis's attitude in the founding theology of his AMORC, as I've been saying. I can't be sure about his historiography. That's a very kind way of saying I do not necessarily follow his chronology as being defensible. But I'm all in on his philosophy, which is not hostile to Christianity at all. This occult revival movement embraces Jesus as the center point of modern Rosicrucianism's philosophy. It's also tolerant of all religions. Not so cool, right? From a conspiracy theory standpoint. Cool for us, not cool for them. Also, he's unwilling to mark Christianity as the only or superior practice. And so this is anathema to the far-right conspiracy theorist's tribal theology and ideology. Uh, what is uh, anathema? Uh, you know, hate it. Bad news. Okay. Antithesis. Antithesis. This is as good a time as any for me to defend my own alchemical actor theology against charges of relativism. What a far-right conspiracy theorist or end-times prophet or even just your workaday conservative evangelical pastor means when they complain about relativism is a spiritual or religious relativism which leads to a moral relativism. If someone believes they are right then I can't prove or disprove their belief, and so I must consider their belief as valid as my own, in a relativist paradigm. In theory, if a serial killer thinks it's righteous, uh, or a righteous act to murder blonde college girls, I can't say otherwise. But that's not the proper occultist attitude. It's not what Lewis is articulating in his history of the Rosicrucians, and it's not what we believe in here. For Lewis, there are clear parameters for a true religion. He privileges monotheism, but also service to others in a program that alternates between self-development and working to share with and raise up other people. We can debate these as central tenets of a system of belief, but we can also agree, along with Crowley and Blavatsky and Akhenaten and Tutankhamun, that there is a divine spark in everyone that correlates to a divine presence in the world around us. Ah, <laughs> thank you. Or, I wasn't expecting that, James, but I'm delighted. <laughs> or, if we prefer the Gnostic view above us, right? So Inclusive. I'm gonna thank you. There you go. I'm gonna let the Gnostics in. I don't gener- I don't agree with them, but I'm gonna let them into the party. Just let them in a little bit. There is a divine spark, even if it's not among us. It's above us. Mm-hmm. It's it's there. It's there to access. This determines how we ought to treat each other and what we ought to strive for. But it does not fill in the details about how we might access or follow that divine spark. These details vary from culture to culture and person to person. But they always entail loving and encouraging the divine spark in those around us and seeking to know God, however God is defined, better. But the divine is so complex and many-faceted that no one of us can ever claim to know exactly what God is or what God wants. No one can ever speak for God, but we all have a responsibility to reach for God, the highest and the best that we can be for ourselves and for each other. 
A belief system that presumes a very narrow spiritual path with very strict and detailed guidelines like that of our far-right Illuminati conspiracy theorists presumes to speak for the divine with a kind of arrogance that I reject. The honest perspective is a humble one. We can only know of God and what God reveals to us either through prophets and messiahs or to us directly. And these revelations are always incomplete and limited because we are finite beings, whereas God is infinite. This is really a middle path. I'm not saying all paths are valid always because I'm also not saying anyone has the one single route to divine or spiritual truth. Any perspective that is open-minded and loving that opens our souls up to God and to each other is a good one that we should remain open to. Any perspective that is narrow-minded and supremacist or that closes our souls off from God or each other is a bad one that we should avoid. This is not moral relativism. Our psycho-killer doesn't pass this test because he arrogantly privileges himself over the temporal and spiritual quests of his victims. On a wider but less extreme scale, we can say the exact same thing about the anti-occult conspiracy theorist. A true relativist would say they are entitled to their opinion. I'm saying they're wrong. Yeah, tell them. Get them. But we've really just gotten beneath the surface of the cultural meaning and impact of the New World Order conspiracy. And there are miles to go before we can truly understand where they're coming from and how their way of thinking has impacted our culture. Next time on Occult Confessions, we turn to the false protocols of the elders of Zion. What were they? And why did people believe them? And how is an Illuminati conspiracy theorist like a fascist? Or literally just a fascist? Okay, uh, we're back to our segment where uh, we, we have our correspondent in the field, our alchemical actor in the field. So we're going out into the field again. Uh, now, this is Shannon Landers we have uh, doing our first field assignment. Uh, let's, let's see if we can get her on the line here. Placing the call here to Shannon. Oh, hello? Rob, are you there? Shannon. Shh, shh, oh, Rob, Rob. Okay, you want me to... They can't... Yeah, just... just Am I on sure. speaker? Uh, no, but okay. you know, we have to be quiet. I don't want to get both caught. Us. Yeah. What do you mean? So where are we reaching you? Um, I'm still in the Waffle House. Sh- Shannon, it's it's been yeah. like four weeks. It's okay. I'm in the closet. You're in the, you're in the in the closet. I didn't even know Waffle, Waffle House. Houses had closets. I found one, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> they exist. Okay. <laughs> so. I, I, I Rob, I they caught on, and I just booked it. You, I, I just left everything, and I sprinted to the first closet I found. What did you know? The, the Illuminati, Rob, <laughs> is here. Is in the in the Waffle House. She could t- she she was able to tell that I knew. She could tell in my eyes, Rob. She who is she? The waitress. All the waitresses, all the servers, they know, and they know that I know. So which is why I'm in the closet. Wow. Wow. I've been living off of waffle waffle scraps. Waffle scraps? What is that? <laughs> Are you okay, Shannon? It's all right. It's all right. Sorry, this is just it's going to be okay. You know, it's it's going like, to be all right. You know when someone does so you, finish for the, eating their waffles. When people finish eating their waffles. When they don't finish eating their You waffles, eat the scraps. That's, yes. Closet. All right. So do you have a strategy for getting out of this closet? Um, Yes. So I decided I've been slowly knitting myself a, a server outfit. 
so I can blend in with the workers. <laughs> so the Waffle House folks, they wear a knitted outfit. I'm in the closet, Rob. I have to work with what I have. Does no one ever come in the closet? I think the light switch is on the other side of the door. Oh, no. Which it doesn't really make sense. But no one's but... ever accessing anything. What What's in this closet with you? Oh, there's a mop and some needle and thread. They don't mop the Waffle House? Oh, I got you. You can come in and visit me at the Waffle House. I'll be in the uniform and I'll take your order, and then you can see for yourself. So you're gonna work at the after yeah, you've completed the office. You're gonna more take a job. That's the next step. I'm All gonna right. become one of the workers. I'm gonna blend in with their society. Let me talk to Olivia, and we'll we'll try and, okay. and make a trip to the Waffle House. Where 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 are you at? Which Waffle House are you at? Uh-huh. Uh, never mind. We'll find you. Okay. Our sources. Emily Teeter, Religion and Ritual in Ancient Egypt. Thank you, Emily. H. Spencer Lewis, Question and Answers with Complete History of the Rosicrucian Order. The Rosicrucians by Christopher McIntosh. Francis Yates, The Rosicrucian Enlightenment. Christian Rabis, The Rosicrucian History and Mysteries. The Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosicruits, translated by Jocelyn Godwin with a commentary by Adam McLean. And those are our sources. Woo! Very well done, Rob. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Any closing thoughts? I'm just trying to dry my eyes. You, Olivia? You Are you crying? I cried. I'm done. Cry a little. Oh, what part made you cry? The, the wedding? End. Oh, the wedding got me. <laughs> <laughs> and James liked the sermon after the wedding. Uh, yes, yes the reception. The oh. <laughs> reception, where Rob went on too long for the best man speech. Uh, all right. Uh, Olivia, bring us on home. I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of the secret order of alchemical actors till such a time as we get together and do it again. You may have noticed uh, we are not gonging into the order of confessors that is closed for the month uh, on account of the plague. Uh, by plague, I mean COVID-19. Very serious about this. Yeah. Uh, we've been joking a little bit, uh, but for real, if closed the order of confessors, we will resume the order of confessors um, uh, with our fifth episode. We're in number three here, right? So the fifth episode of this series we'll, we'll come back and, and start responding to you all and we look forward to that but we will respond to you in live time as you are quarantined into your home on the various social medias uh, where you can interact with us so please do please do reach out join the facebook group that we just created and uh, we look we forward did. to talking with you as we are all quarantined into our homes after quarantine today quarantine party love you bye i am joined today by james kaplanji's captain of the table oh hello bye <laughs> olivia literal our grandmaster Bye, everyone. Uh, Dan Rosendale did the voices of CR, Christian Rosenkreutz, also uh, Andrea. Always glad to be here, Rob. And a shout out to Sean Priest, who did our uh, Lewis. So my name is Rob C. Thompson. Thank you again for joining us. Join us next time, which for us is going to be about five minutes from now, uh, (laughs) as we explore the protocols of the Elders of Zion, a false and pernicious book. Bye.